podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Let's get ready to rumble! Y'all ready for this? Hello everybody and welcome. It is Anfield Index Face of Fan Reaction. I'm your host Kay. We're going to talk about that game, Chelsea, uh, Liverpool, 1-0. Ugh. And it's getting close to the end of the season now and we're still not safe and it's really giving me heart palpitations. I don't like it. But let me introduce you to the panel and co-host uh, with me every week is Tadiwa Chanakira. How are you, Tadiwa? Hey, okay, I'm doing good and you? Ah, cool, 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 cool. Had a day to process that result and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm better now. I'm better now. It's fine. <laughs> And uh, with me, no stranger to the show, AI writer Tom Holmes. Welcome. How are you, Tom? Yeah, not bad, thanks, Kay. Not bad. It's been a pretty solid bank holiday weekend here in the UK. So um, really good, really sunny as well, which oh, nice. is is a massive surprise for us. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love how English, uh, uh, like Britain, uh, always like. Uh, Sunny days are quite surprising in a way. <laughs> it's always this sort of like great serendipity, which is amazing. <laughs> it's not like that here. We sort of, we have so much sun that once it, when it gets cold, it always seems to suddenly creep up on us. And then everybody goes around saying things like, oh, God, it got cold really suddenly. And then it's still like 15 degrees outside. <laughs> <laughs> 15 degrees. Oh. That's not fair. I'm not even kidding. Like fair. 15 degrees, people are putting on jerseys and stuff like that. <laughs> Oof. So yeah, good holiday place. Uh, come for holidays. It's great. <laughs> it's <laughs> let me, let me, let me get you to kick us off, Tom. What do you think about that game? <laughs> where, where to start? Um, I, didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually watch the game live. I watched the game. I watched the game this afternoon. Hmm. Um, because I were, to be honest with you, I was kind of of the mindset of F will probably get a draw. It will probably be fine. Don't really need to worry about it. It will probably be a rubbish 1-1 draw. And then, well, we were dire, weren't we? Absolutely dire. Um, we were all right for half an hour. Looked like we were pretty solid for half an hour. Mane especially looked like he was getting in the game. Um, and then after, after Chelsea scored, we just kind of, the game, the goal completely knocked the stuffing out of us. And it's very surprising for us to, I, I, I can't remember the last time we came out in a game where we weren't playing well and were losing and turned in such a flat second half performance. Because mm. usually you'll see at least a bit of fight in the second half and a bit of, you know, I mean, the games we tend to lose 1-0 or the games we tend to get a bad result in, there'll be at least one or two really good chances in the second half. And it's one of those where we'll actually end up with, like, having created at least two or three big chances. It will just, like, and it will be one of those where, like, oh, it just felt like everything was going against us, or we should have got a penalty, or there's usually, there's usually something to look back on and go, oh, it's really frustrating that we didn't get the result there. Mm. Whereas in this one, we absolutely deserved what we got, which is really frustrating, because that's not, not something we're used to seeing from this Liverpool team. We're used to at least having, you know, bits to take from the second half performances, uh, even if it's just, even if it's a bad miss, or even if it's a penalty shot. But that we didn't, I mean, Solanke had a half chance late on, but that was pretty much it, really. All of our, all of our decent openings in this game came in the opening half hour. It was pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It just, that's it's so interesting to talk about this horrible game. It's almost like it's a one-off, but to do how, how was it for you? Uh, you agree with what Tom says there, and, you know, Let's move on from there as well in, 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 in what you're going to talk about because there was a very big sense before the game like Chelsea are going to come. They're not very good this season and we sort of do expect them to roll over. If not, at, at least to the point where we can sort of get away with not really turning in a massive performance. Yeah, I think that that's part of the mistake. Maybe I don't know if the players felt that same way as, as we as fans did, but certainly I felt a lot of the fans, especially on Twitter and so forth, were sort of overlooking what Chelsea could do in this game. It was kind of a foregone conclusion, like, oh, we'll definitely minimum at least get a point, you know, maybe even get the win, we could get them on the counter or something like that. 
But this is actually a Chelsea side, if you look over their last couple of games, yes, they may not have played um, as well as some of their, their fans would have wanted them to play, but they have been grinding out results. And not only that, they're a team that's been allowed in in a week where we're playing a, a game midweek. They've had time, you know, a whole week to sort of try and pick out, and I'm sure we'll speak about the likes of Salah later on, but try and pick out ways to to circumvent the, the attacking threats of the Salahs, you know, and the Firminos. So it's a team that definitely had a plan for this game. It's a team that was a lot fresher than our one, um, both on the eye and the, the way the game panned out. And I think they we didn't give them as much credit as they actually deserved. I, I, I think they would have targeted this specific game to say, here's a chance to actually you know, take Liverpool on. And obviously it's a Liverpool side that if we compare to Liverpool in Champions League compared to Liverpool in the league over the last, let's say, six or seven games, it's two. it seems like it's two different teams that are playing and which is understandable because of the efforts that are being put in midweek. We can't seem to replicate that during the weekend as well. Yeah, yeah. There also just seems to be something going on at Chelsea behind the scenes. It's... Most of the season we've looked at almost as Chelsea are just waiting to fire Conte and Conte is just waiting to be fired kind of thing. A lot of the times in the season, they sort of almost just called in a performance and sort of now at the back end, the back end of the season, they're sort of finding themselves putting in a couple of performances and putting themselves in contention to finish top four. I mean, what do you make of what's going on behind the scenes there? Yeah, it's quite an interesting story. And obviously with Chelsea, this seems to be a problem that they seem to face the season after they win a a Premier League title. They Mm. seem to sort of fall off the rails or I don't know if it's whether it's getting the right motivation within the, 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 the champion squad that they have. There are players in there that you can see they're not necessarily as, as, um, as keen to do it as they were the previous season. I think it, it's a it's a taxing effort winning a Premier League title. And to be able to do it back-to-back is something that not many teams are able to do. Now, if you look at Chelsea going into this season, I think their problem started as soon as the summer window. Uh, Antonio Conte obviously had a certain uh, certain players that he had in mind on who he was looking to bring in. He had already picked out. and And the thing is, maybe... His downfall in this was that he specifically called out certain players that he was going for. He he name dropped the likes of Arturo Vidal. He name dropped um, Alexandro from Juventus as well as Bonucci at Juventus. So opposed to what normal um, what managers usually do is sort of name a position or a style of player that they're looking for. He went and specifically called out specific names that he wanted in the club. And the moment those names didn't come in, obviously the questions were now falling on him to say, you know, how come these players didn't come in? And that's when he got on the defensive. And it seemed like that that narrative of him being on the defensive carried on throughout the season. Unfortunately for him, he also had... There was quite a, a big bust up with David Luiz when David Luiz uh, criticized uh, um, Conte's tactics. I think it was the Roma game in the group stages of the Champions League. And ever since that bust up, they, David Luiz hasn't really featured for them. I know in 2018, I think he's played one Premier League game for them. And this is, Luiz is known for being quite a prominent person in any dressing room that he goes to. So there are going to be players that have aligned with him. If you if you look carefully at their lineups, the likes of Willian, they've they've been on the outskirts of the squad. Whereas if you look at Williams' form this season, he's probably one of the players who could hold his hand up and say, "I've tried." But he's sort of aligned with David Luiz. Um, we saw Giroud. I don't know if it will be controversial, but he went after his goal. He went straight to go and hug David Luiz. Will there be repercussions for that? Because he definitely is someone that's been, you know, ostracized by Antonio Conte. So he's been having to battle that sort of hierarchy, who's the bigger man in the dressing room thing with David Luiz. And there have been factions within the dressing room with that. He's been dealing with the transfers that have been coming in. He's been singing lyrical about how he's not been involved in, in any of the transfers that have happened and if you look at the specific signings they've had, the Drinkwaters, the Barclays, mm. are there really types of players that Conte would want to bring in? Uh, you could argue that they're not necessarily. Jesus, well, the way uh, he rinsed Barclay publicly was 
Wow, that was so cringy. Oh, wow. But if you if you look at it from from an objective point of view, Barkley at 15 million is it it should be a steal for any of the Premier League teams considering he has the potential to do something. You know, he could be trained to become a really good player and you you're definitely at the minimum going to get your money back, which is I think what Chelsea were trying to do. And then if you also look at a bit higher up in the Chelsea backroom staff, you look at the departure of the the likes of uh, Michael Emil, um, Aminalo, who was sort of at the hierarchy of sorting out all of the transfers at Chelsea. He sort of had to go. And the moment he went, then that job sort of then went to Roman Abramovich's, what you'd call his right-hand man at Chelsea, um, so to speak. I don't know if it's official or unofficial, but he's, he tends to be the man Abramovich listens to the most, who is Mar- um, Marina. And mm. he seems to be to have taken over that role. So it seems like it's a, it's not just a, 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 a stage where they remember they're building a new stadium. So that also plays into it. So it's not just like they're building a new stadium. They're going to have to rebuild the entire backroom staff. Whether Conte is going to be there for that or not, it's looking unlikely for him to be there. There are quite a few managers, if you look out there, who are available, who Chelsea, I think, would be keen to get in. And then probably the biggest thing for him, and which led to all the drama uh, leading into the January transfer window, if I can end with this, has been the form of Morata. You know, he was one of the coveted strikers going into the season. I know Mourinho desperately wanted him at Man United, and when he couldn't get him, that's when he went for Lukaku. It may turn out that they got the better deal there. But unfortunately for Morata, and this is something I know, um, it's starting to come out in the news recently, but it hasn't been known... You know, a lot of players play with injuries, and Morata has actually played this season with quite a severe back injury. He he has gone um, throughout the season. He'd go to Germany, Spain to sort of go get treatments, and then be expected to come back. You know, to training the next day. He had to. He had to. He's constantly been taking sort of pain injections, okay. to, just to 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 kind of you know subdue the pain. Mm. So I I can't imagine it being your first season. You know, in the Premier League coming to a new club, facing a season-long back injury and and having to play to standards where even when he was scoring goals, he wasn't really... I didn't sense that he was loved by the Chelsea fans, you know, in a, in a way that they, they would have wanted to love their, their leading striker. I think there's a bit of sourness with the way David... Um, with the way um, Diego Costa left. So it's been a very difficult season for Morata and then it will be interesting to see what happens with him in the summer because I've heard rumors of he's going back to Juve on loan with an option to buy. Like he, from his wow. side of the thing, yeah. So from his side of the deal, uh, hashtag breaking news, not really breaking news. <laughs> well, we'll find out how it transpires. But the way it's looking, he's sort of agreed the personal terms on his end. It's now for the clubs to sort of try and look to to see how that deal will be structured. Damn. That sounds atrocious for backroom. But anyway, <laughs> I, I know we, you know, we're from the outside looking in. But wow, that's that's a lot, man. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, Tom, to get back to Liverpool here, and let's get back to the opening half an hour because when we start, I saw something that I sort of haven't seen maybe maybe this whole season. But it was sort of interesting how the the vertical play happened, especially between the defenders and Genie in the six and Genie to the rest of the midfield and to the forwards. Like th- that sort of those patterns of passing, the more vertical passing, the back and forth seemed to be quicker. It seemed to be higher tempo. And we were running the game for quite a long time. It continued like literally until Bucker, until, um, sorry, the goal came in from Giroud. And it was just inexplicably after that, we saw no signs of that. We, we saw gaps in the absence of this there was no real pattern of play it was sort of a gap between the defense and the midfield between the midfield and the forward line and we just sort of couldn't find ways to really get that engine that system going yeah no we couldn't i think there's got there's got to be a few factors fatigue has obviously got to be one of them and i think i personally said and felt before the game we needed to start well we needed to put the game we need to get the goal in the opening half hour because mm. i felt like i felt like it was one of those games where Chelsea know we played a big game in midweek and Chelsea know that they've got the legs. So Chelsea know that if they keep us at 
I mean, Chelsea played it tactically perfectly. Keep us out, keep us at bay for half an hour. Because as much as we were better, the better team for half an hour, we didn't create much in the way of genuine chances. Mane had a few decent efforts from range. But if you look at the decent openings, they were all sort of efforts from outside the box, apart from the Bobby one, which was again from a tight angle. So, you know, there weren't massive, there weren't, you know, Chelsea did a good job of keeping us at bay, playing quite a tight system. And then obviously once we started to flag, once they were able to get the goal, they were able to take control of the game. So they played it pretty tactically smart. So it was a combination of Chelsea really, I think, setting up their stall pretty effectively. And kind of in after that half hour, I think they obviously made a slight tweak to the way they played it. I mean, Kante was running the show for them in midfield. Kante was excellent again. But equally, I just think, I think we flagged. And I think it's, I think it was as much a psychological flagging as it was a physical one in the sense that once we conceded that goal, there was that kind of ominous sense about the place. And it obviously only got worse as it went on. But I, I, I think what was it, what really was important for me was half time because we came out in the second half and clearly after half time, we just had nothing, absolutely nothing in the tank. We didn't have a shot between the 48th minute and the 84th minute. Hmm. When you're losing one nil, that's, abominable especially when you're considering that we're playing a team who are, ne- are not a great attacking side and we're not gonna outplay us I, I just think it's got to be a combination of factors but I think a part of the issue is we just didn't have anyone really to come off the bench to kind of lift the team uh we didn't really have any any of that anyone to come off who could really make a big difference I mean bringing on Hendo in the out on the hour mark is 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 fair enough but he's not Henderson's a good player and I like Henderson a lot and I think he's an integral part of our midfield but he's not a game changer that's not his role. That's not his, his what he's going to do. He's not going to go out there and completely change the game. Dom Solanke, I think he's an option, but he's the sort of option where the ball's got to already be going into the box, if that makes sense. We've got to already yeah. be creating something for him to be on the end of. He's not going to change. He's not going to make a difference unless we're already doing the kind of stuff that would suit him, if that makes sense. That's why I feel like he's he tends to benefit when we play games where we're already dominating possession, really, really knocking the knocking on the door, but not really able to really break it down. And he obviously got that one-headed chance near the end, which was a decent one. But, I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense that we had so much possession that we're able to do absolutely nothing with it. And I don't know whether we were just so flat because of tactical mistakes or whether Chelsea just set up really well or whether it was entirely energy-based or fatigue. And there was it, it's a combination of factors, I think. But on the day, I think Chelsea just set up the better. Chelsea were better prepared. And we could not get, those, as you say, we couldn't get that vertical passing going. Could not seem to get the movement. And I don't know whether playing Genie at the six worked or not. I don't know whether that had a massive say in it. But we just could not get a foothold in in terms of in the final third because we just couldn't seem to really create move them enough. We couldn't really generate enough lateral movement to really get the players dragged out of position. And as a result, they were pretty comfortable. And I think second half, they came out slightly more aggressive, slightly more with slightly more intent, and that allowed them to sort of put us on the back foot a bit more, especially at the start of the second half, and we just could not get in the game. Yeah, no, to do I react to that? Like, what, what was your opinion on this? Chelsea did set up really well, but... Do you think Liverpool were a bit tactically inflexible? Uh, how and how big a factor do you think the fatigue was? Yes, I definitely think fatigue played quite a big factor in that. Um, you have to you have to take into account the amount of running that our players have gone through over the past, you know, let's say the past six months. If we want to take this this back end of the season, if you sort of break the season down in halves, and you have to take into consideration. The, not just, remember, it's not just the physical running that, that takes place in a game such as the game in Roma. And I think we have to, um, look at this Chelsea game in the context of that. It's also the mental fatigue. You have to be concentrating for 90 minutes and constantly, you know, a new information is coming into your brain and you're reacting to it physically. And so all of that has to, has to be taken into account. And also the high that comes with winning or so or rather going through to to a final that also plays into the into the into the players minds so you've come off this big high of a big game you know on a wednesday night and and then you're having to come back down to earth and dig out a result away from home that's a very very difficult thing to do and 
if, if you remember a couple of podcasts back when, when we played West Brom, that's why I was so disappointed in that game because I knew the next two games will be, were going to be so difficult because Liverpool, and it's not just this season, but in seasons past, they've shown that when we come off those big highs of European nights on, you know, midweek European nights, usually the next game, there's quite a drop in terms of whether it might not be necessarily the, the desire of, of wanting to win the games, but there is a, a drop. Maybe the passing is not quite on. The intensity is quite not on. And also, we, we, we then also approach these games slightly differently. We don't have the energy levels of that high press we're used to. Now, I'm sure, to, and we have to also give credit to Conte, who is actually one of the master tacticians within the Premier League. And all of this information, I'm sure he would have taken in. And if you saw the way he set that team up, he blocked off that midfield. He basically told Conte, and, and Tom was right in saying Conte had an, uh, an insane game. And Conte was basically sitting, you know, in front of that in front of that back three, so to speak. So there was no space for us to go down the middle, which is what we seem to keep insisting on. And the problem for us is now, if we're, if we're trying to go down the middle and we can't go down the middle, the only option would be to go down the, to go down the flanks. And if we're going down the flanks, I think the better option would have been hitting the byline and then crossing from there so that their defenders are sort of turning. But we were sort of crossing from a lot deeper. And if you're now crossing from a lot deeper and you've got the likes of Cahill and the Rudigers and the Aspilicueta, those are some big center backs, you know, and they, and we're expecting Firmino and Salah and Mane to be winning headers against them. I think that's very unlikely. So tactically, there was no space for us to operate in. That's why I was hoping that we would have had those, you know, fullbacks sort of bombing overlapping so that we can sort of try and look to turn them and stuff like that. But I don't know if we can expect that from from the fullbacks, uh, considering Klein, he hasn't had that much football this season, expecting him to bomb up, you know, bomb forward and then have to track back with their with the way their wingbacks were, were playing. And then on the other side, you look at Robertson was starting. You know, he also had a big midweek in terms of um, the energy levels he exerted. We can't really be expecting him to be hitting the byline there either. So maybe the question would then be from a, from a, you know, starting 11 selection point of view, what was the, was the team selection right? You could argue that it's, it's, it's quite a limited, um, squad that Klopp has at the moment. It's limited in the options that he could take. So there's not much he could do there, but therein lies that, that risk that Klopp took sort of in, in January. You know, if, if we are to believe the stories of the money was there, you know, you, we never really know what that situation is. But let's just go with the, the belief that or the assumption that the money was available and he could have replenished the squad. He then took that calculated risk to say, I've got enough in the squad, you know, to see me through the goals that he would have set for the season. And I think... If it works out, I'm, I'm all for praising Klopp. You know, well done to him, the team, everyone involved. But also in that, if, if it doesn't work out, then they have to hold their hands up and say, you know, maybe we, we made a mistake here. And it's, it's not something that you need to preface because I feel like anytime you speak about Klopp, you have to preface it by saying, you know, whether you are a Klopp fan or you're not a Klopp fan. Um, I like Klopp, you know, I, me criticizing him doesn't mean that I automatically, you know, don't like him. Every manager has his, you yeah. know, strengths and his yeah. weaknesses. And Klopp likes to play with a very, very small squad. Um, and he likes to put belief in his players. And to be fair to him, I don't think, um, the players would be sort of, you know, running the distances that he's expecting them to run if he, if he didn't instill that sort of belief in them in any case. So the fact that he has that small, tight-knit squad, he believes in everyone, he's backing everyone, he's pushing everyone, that's what gets those, you know, those, those performances that we'd be loving this season. But the other side of that coin is having that such a small squad like that then also comes with when the injuries happen, you can see how short we are in the squad. Now, that's on, that's on each manager's style to, to take that calculated risk, to say, you know what, 
you know, that's stuff that he, he, he factors in when he's going into, into a window. And then finally, the last point on, on sort of the, the, the tactics we went into it with and also the, the, the lineup that we went into it with. Um, people are always talking about how, you know, oh, we, look, we don't need, we didn't need Coutinho after all. And also the fact that Coutinho, you know, we won more games without Coutinho than we did with Coutinho. That, that's been a favorite for everyone, you know, um, justifying the sale of Coutinho. Look, I, I don't have a problem with that. If, if you wanted to leave, we know a club squad, like you have to believe in the club system to be able to play in a club system. And I'm not talking about the backroom stuff, uh, stuff that happened that, that, that I don't know enough information to, to make a call on. But we have to also take into consideration that having a player like Coutinho, I'm not saying that having the style of Coutinho would have changed this game because he would have, you know, hit a shot from 40 yards or anything like that. I'm talking about the rotation of our front three. Our front three look absolutely finished at the moment in terms of physicality. Maybe a week's break, we'll see a different one this coming Sunday, but they look absolutely tired. And if you have a Coutinho, that allows you to play three of the four. You know, you you can keep rotating and resting one and then sort of changing the game tactic to then suit the fresher one. So Coutinho being there, my argument has always been not necessarily how he would have broken down a team, but the fact that we could we could have brought him into games and it wouldn't have dropped the level of our front three. Whereas now, the moment we take one of our front three off the pitch, the, the level completely drops. Mm-hmm. No, I, I feel you on a number of points there. The one is the crossing thing, which has always just sort of stunned me from from Liverpool perspective because we're just we, we seem to not be very good at that over many managers now, <laughs> to be honest. And I, I remember when James Milner was at City, I think it was you know Mancini, and then um, the the manager that came after was it Green. Pellegrini? Yeah, they had they had these patterns of play in and around the box where Milner was critical to that, and he was critical in being able to like play one twos or or do little rondos to be able to get to the byline and cross it in. So it's it's a bit like it's a bit surprising that like James Milner now, especially given the plays that are there, he's it's not something he's picking up on and suggesting, or maybe you know it's just one of those things from from Klopp where you have to specifically coach that into your attack, and and it's not something that we've done with Rogers, not something we've done with Klopp, but it's it's a bit it's a bit mystifying because when you have shorter strikers, that's what you do. You know, that's if you're going to cross it, then you, you sort of have to hit the byline, like you say, to get your defense turned around. But I want to pick up your point about the playmaking and, uh, and get Tom to, to just uh, react to that because Tom, what we saw today is both with the fatigue and the fact that Chelsea set up the way they set up, it means that, you know, we couldn't use pressing in as much as we, we wanted to and I think fatigue you can see it across the last couple uh, Premier League games that we, you know we haven't been able to attack the back lines especially of teams the way we the way we wanted to because perhaps we've just been a bit tired and perhaps we've just been preserving our energy but without the pressing there seems to be no playmaker as such how do you react to Tadiwa's point on having a player like Phil and to make this a bit broader how would that impact the squad for you? What kind of play do we have to get in to be able to supplement the front three? If you get in a player like Phil, who is obviously, you know, very creative, but perhaps doesn't fit in all the different things that are happening with that club side, perhaps he, the system has to be bent a little bit to, to fit in with him. Is that going to be beneficial for the squad again? Or do we have to get a particular kind of playmaker that's certainly a lot more direct or maybe somebody who plays across the front three? I mean, how are you looking at this issue? The issue with something like the Phil question is that it very much varies on a game-to-game basis. So, for example, I don't think Phil would have made much difference last weekend against Stoke. This weekend is a different question because I've, I'm, my attitude towards Phil has always been the main thing we'll miss from him is his shooting. Um, I think he's a fantastic player who can do pretty much everything. But in these sorts of games, he tends to do what a lot of our players do, which is panic and belt it from 20 yards. Um, we didn't really do that in this game, to be fair, because a lot, mo- the vast majority of our shots were in the first half, which is, as I say, really not good. Mm. But someone like Phil, I don't, he doesn't tend to be good at playmaking against a deep lying defence. He tends to be better at playmaking in the sort of games where we're already creating enough chances. 
That's the mm. thing. I think Phil's one of those players who would absolutely fit with our front three in a game like, for example, the Man City game, where we were, or the Port, or the Roma game that we won 5-2. If Phil was playing in that game, we'd have had an absolute field day. But we were already having an absolute field day in those sorts of games because we've got enough players who can play the sorts of passes. I think Phil, obviously Phil's a better midfield option. He's a better midfield option in a lot of ways. I don't think this is the sort of game, this is the sort of game where he might have made a difference. But overall, I don't think he's necessarily the sort of playmaker that we need. I think what we need is we need someone who can do a little bit more of the intricate kind of stuff. And sort of, I think, I think the crossing point is a really important one in terms of playmaking because we re- I think we've seen both Robbo and Trent are really good at getting to the byline and pulling it back. But when there's no space in behind to get to the byline, that's when we really start to struggle and start to panic. And I think panic is another key, per- key point. Um, I'm, I'm really struggling to think about what the sort of playmaker we need is we need someone who can be a little bit more intricate, not someone who can play, someone who is a little bit more selfless and can sort of generate a bit of space. And I almost think someone like Ox is really good for this sort of game in the sense that they can generate space in different ways. Mm-hmm. So, someone like a dribbler. And that's why I think someone like Naby is going to be vitally important because he can. Naby is the one player who I'd be looking at to bring into that midfield who can do something like just take was, Kante out of the game. I was actually just, just going to be- say because like you have... This criteria is almost ridiculous, right, Tom? <laughs> it's like yeah. you have to be able to press, you have to be able to break a line with a pass, you have to be able to run the way Klopp wants you to run and work for the team. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's a bit crazy. I think, yeah. I think I think you need a very distinctive type of player. I think I think well, more than a passing playmaker, I think we almost need a dribbling playmaker, and that's why I feel like someone like Naby would be really important because he is the sort of player who can take someone like Kante out of the game. Because if you can get or, or or take a midfielder out of the game and force Kante to commit. Do you know what mm, I mean? If we mm, can get Kante pushed 10 yards further forward because neither Fabregas nor Bakayoko could get close to Naby, suddenly that's going to cause problems. Suddenly, you know, Kante has to think differently because that's part of the issue. As much as it is, you've got to expose the back three. And if you don't have space in behind, you've got to generate space in front. And the best way to do that is to force someone to make a mistake, force someone to commit an error. Uh, I'm just going to have a look at our dribbling stats quickly. Yeah, in terms of dribbling, we didn't really have anyone doing any dribbling. Uh, it's mm. certainly not from the midfield. Milner, cre- Milner had two dribbles over the 90 minutes, for, and from the midfield, that, that's our most. Genie didn't do a single dribble, which is mm. strange, because you'd expect Genie to do a bit of dribbling. Trent did one, to be fair, and he was playing in midfield for most of the game. But we need someone who can go and drop three, four, five dribbles a game in the midfield and yeah. generate a bit of space. And that's Somebody why Phil actually been, does that, yeah. That, that is where Phil would have been useful. And I do take the point about rotation, especially with regards to Phil, because he would have been an extra option. But the argument I would make on that is that I don't think we would have seen any rotation across these sorts of... I don't think this is the sort of game you'd see much rotation anyway, because it's Chelsea away. It's Chelsea away. You've got to play your best 11 for that game anyway, even if you've had a big game in midweek. So I don't think we would have seen... I don't think... I think if Phil, had, if Phil was in the team... Phil would have started both games, Roma and this one, and so would the front three anyway. I take the point about rotation, but I don't think this is the sort of game where rotation necessarily... M- we want we want quality options, and we want a lot of quality options, but realistically, I'm not sure Phil would have made a massive difference across this game. I think there are obviously better circumstances. And the other point I would make is that how many times in the last five months since he left have we looked and gone, do you know what, we really needed Phil today? Um, not very often. And it generally tends to be games that where we're basically saying we need Phil because we didn't win. And I think this is, don't get me wrong, I think this was a, our worst attacking display of the season. And it's very, very easy to look at our worst attacking display of the season and go, yeah, we need Phil. And it's very, very easy when we're knackered to go and go, yeah, we need another player. But I think if you look at what, if you look at how the other players have responded to Phil leaving, I think I, I agree with Klopp in the sense that I think Phil would have been too toxic an atmosphere, too toxic an element to that dressing room. Um, and I think certainly it was, it was, I don't, I don't necessarily think we we're, be- we're a better team without Phil, but as I've said before, I don't think we need him. And I think players like him, I think Klopp make, Klopp has to draw a line in the sand. And I think Klopp drew the right, made, drew, did the right thing by drawing that line in the sand and saying, if you don't want to be here, fuck off. That's mm. it. Straightforward. Yeah, That's but- it. Tom, could I maybe clarify a bit there? As, as you say, I, um, I agree. I don't think you can look at individual games and say we needed Phil there, we didn't need Phil there. I was looking at sort sort of sort of making a brushstroke. If if let's say for example we take the from West Brom until now we're playing Chelsea. Yeah. Um, so you played West Brom. 
that West Brom game, not all three, not the whole front three would have played. One of them could have been full, which means one of them is then, you know, more fresh for the Roma game. And then, or even if you take the, the Stoke game, um, having seen that, you know, we were 5-2 up against Roma, that being able to add that quality, you know, and keeping the level of quality still there, it allows you to move the pieces a bit more. Because my issue is what we've seen with Klopp, and uh, Kay and I had a discussion about this earlier this afternoon, is is that, we yes, we have the players like the the Ben Woodburns and, you know, the Curtis Jones, any of the younger players, even the Ings and Dom Solanke's, you know, to some extent, where... To us as fans, we may see them as one way, whereas to Klopp, he's seeing them a different way. Where for all of us, I think all three of us would admit Ben Woodburn is a fantastic prospect. I think he he's cap- he was he you know he was capable of playing you know some minutes in the Premier League this season, but it doesn't seem like Klopp is willing to thrust him into that situation for whatever reason it could be. It could be he doesn't want to put too much pressure. He doesn't want, you know, there could be any, a number of factors in there. But if you had a player of full continuous quality, we know that Klopp would be willing to sub him in. It, it's like, maybe I can narrow it down by saying, it's, it's like people that are saying, oh, when Emre Chan comes back, I hope he's not, he doesn't, you know, feature for the final because, you know, he wants to leave or whatever. Morons. But for me, yeah, I know. But <laughs> Absolute morons. It makes me so angry. <laughs> yeah, there's no logic in that because I would rather have an Emre Chan on the bench than have a Ben Woodburn on the bench because I know Klopp's never going to play Ben Woodburn. I don't think the Emre situation and the Phil situation are the same, though, because I think with Emre... I don't think there's any evidence that Emre actively wants out. He's never said he wants to leave. He's never kicked up a stink. He's done his job to the best of his ability. And what, anyone who's pretend, anyone who doesn't think that he's not injured is fooling themselves, as far as I'm concerned. So I don't think it's necessarily the same. I think if you've got a player like Phil, who is willing to make themselves a toxic influence in that dressing room, who is willing to skip games or, or fake injury to get out of playing for the club, that is a toxic influence, and that is an issue, and that is the sort of thing that can overshadow a team, especially when, as you as you say, Klopp prefers a smaller squad because he, to him, loyalty and trust are really, really important. And we've seen in the second half of the season that players players have played better, given a bit more time, given a bit more influence under Klopp. So I, I do think that there are some clear, I think there are some clear, there is some clear evidence that someone like Fulcatino would have made a huge difference over the last few weeks in terms of being able to rotate the squad. But I do think there. But I do think that keeping him would have been too, a too toxic, but b too too different to what to what Klopp's project is. I think it would have been too too ad, too disadvantageous in the long run to what Klopp's project was. And ultimately, I think the bottom line is, I think we I think we probably couldn't have had a better season with Phil Coutinho in the team. Realistically, we couldn't have, we would we could have got to the Champions League final anyway, but we couldn't have you know we couldn't have done better in the Champions League potential, though obviously we've still got the finals come. But in the league, we couldn't have won the title and we're probably going to get top four. So, I, I, and if we don't get top four, that's not because Phil Coutinho left. It would have been down to the smallest of margins, in my opinion. So I don't necessarily think that the negatives of keeping Phil outweigh the positives of getting rid of him in Klopp's mind, personally. Yes. Um, that, that's why I mentioned earlier the fact that it's a calculated risk Klopp took in not bringing in a full yeah. replacement. I'm not necessarily saying Phil himself needed to stay, yeah. but that level of quality, the fact that we didn't bring anyone in for that it, level of quality. It's a tough one. It is a, but it is a tough one to go out and find yeah. a player. That's the, that is the main issue. I, I agree with you. I would have liked to have seen someone someone replace Phil. And clearly we are feeling it at the moment when you consider how many minutes Salah and Firmino especially have, have, mm. have picked up. It's, it's clear that we need another good attacking option. But, I mean, they both clocked over 4,000 minutes. That's too many minutes realistically um so i think there are that is a clear issue and i don't disagree with that but i i think if you look at this i'm, I'm just not sure that if you look at the circumstances there was a way to make it work other, other than the way we've gone through i think it, i agree completely agree it's a calculated risk and i think and certainly it's going to backfire spectacularly if we don't beat brighton and there's going to be a lot of people making the same points but what i will say is that up until like a week a week or two weeks ago most people would have backed that decision based on the way the back half of the season has gone, is the the way I would see it. Can I ask, guys? I, I, actually, I'm supposed to be moving this along, but this is quite an interesting discussion. If we look at this 
you know, what kind of format does this rotation take place in? Because when we had Phil, the kind of nice thing with him was that he was generally first choice for the midfield and then he could supplement one of the, one of the front three if sort of required. Is that what you think the, you know, a new player sort of has to do sort of mostly starting in the midfield and, and then be able to supplement the front three in, in that sort of way? I mean, again, like what we were saying, Tom, it, it does require quite a broad range of, um, or quite a specific range, sorry, of, of, of skills to be able to do that kind of thing within a club system. But is, in effect, is that what we want? Is that what we're looking for? Um, I think the first thing to note is that most of the players we've been linked with in that position can play as a number eight or a number 10. If you look at, for example, the one we've been linked with over the weekend, Fakir, he can, he's played as a number 10 all season. He hasn't played out wide much this season. So he could definitely drop in and play as an attacking number eight. Um, ditto Lamar to an extent, ditto Pulisic to an extent. Um, I, I think the answer to that question depends entirely on what happens with the midfield in the summer. To be completely honest with you, I think, we have to look at the mid. Where what is our midfield going to look like after the summer? Because if we bring in oh, another if we have first enough numbers, yeah, 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 yeah. If we bring because if we if we bring in another first choice midfielder, if we bring in if we've already got Naby in there and we bring in say I don't know Ruben Neves for example, then you've got two first choice midfielders anyway. So really, another rotation option would just depend entirely game to game. To an extent, they'd almost play as many. It would almost depend on which positions we need filling that week, which is one of the good, which was one of the benefits of having Phil because he, he, he played more in the front three, I think, than he did in the midfield. And I certainly thought he played better in the front three than he did in the midfield for a lot of the season. So it does give you that option of having, rather than having one, rather than having a backup for the midfield and a backup for the what, for the width, you've got someone who, you've got maybe five players to fill four spots. And that's kind of what Phil did. He offered us in the sense four players to fill three and a half spots almost. Um, which gave us a bit of options. So if we can bring in maybe two players who can sort of, maybe not two who can fluctuate, but one who can play anywhere. And then we've got the option to say, drop Bobby, play Salah up top and then play new player wide. Or we can play all three of them and then new player in the eight if we need to in a big game. Or if we've got enough options in the midfield anyway, new player can start on the bench. So I'd like to have, you know, I'd like to be in a situation where we're like Man City. Maybe not quite to that extent in every position, but where we've got at least one player mm who we know is going to be on the bench every week and it's going to be a good bench option coming on, but it doesn't have to be the same player every week. Yeah. See, in that sort of respect, it's just like how Klopp has played at Liverpool. He's keeping such a small group of like, especially the first team players, you know, he tends to, he tends to stick with them. Um, you know, does that mean to deal with that we need a couple of people who are, who basically play more than one position? You know, and, and then that person comes on and is essentially a substitute for two positions instead of, uh, you know, getting sort of a squad like Man City have, and then almost another squad beneath it, if, if, if you want that kind of thing. Cause it, it just, you know, even when he's had at some, uh, you know, in some instances, even when he's had the replacements on the bench, he sort of chooses not to play them. He sort of at times will choose to play the first team player over and over and over and over again until he needs to change things is, you know, is that a problem? Is that what we're looking at for next season, in your opinion? It's, it's quite an interesting topic if, if you look at it. And as Tom mentioned, if you look at the, the type of players we've signed, even, for example, like Gini Wijnaldum, if you look at his career, he's played on the wing, he's played as um, at the number 10, he's played as a number 8, he's played as a number 6, he's played as, an, as a centre-back for us when, when we played Brighton last time. So it's a player that can play in so many different positions. If you look at Oxley Chamberlain, same thing. He could even play right back and you'd be, you'd feel so, you know, some sort of comfort that he, he would be able to put a shift in there. If you look at James Milner, the amount of positions he's done. And the reason for this, and maybe I could give context with regards to, I'm curious to know if Klopp has gotten this philosophy from, you know, how, how much he's into, uh, the grassroots football in Germany. Because if you look at the grassroots football in Germany at the moment, what they're actually training the kids to do is you don't necessarily have a set position to say, I'm the striker mm. or I'm the left winger. I'm the, you know, which is quite a foreign concept for, especially for us watching the English game. We like to specify where he's playing, what what is his role, you know what I mean? Whereas in Germany, they were looking at it where obviously you have your keeper, and then you have your two center backs. They're, they're the, the three positions that are pretty constant. And then your, your full backs, they have a bit more freedom, but not a lot. Cause you know, the, so the back four sort of try and keep the shape. 
and then your number six, he can call others to, to fill his role if the need must, but his primary role is the six. So you've got sort of that five at the back, the, the number six, the traditional back four, that pretty much their positions are set. Definitely the center backs are set. The other ones, they have license to roam depending on your style of play, but they're usually set as well. Then now you look at the front five players and you say, go out there and use your brains. And you can see in, in the types of players we've brought in. And if you look at our front three, they have started to do that quite a bit where Salah goes up top and Firmino covers him, but then Mane goes up top, you know, depending on how, how well you're doing against an opposition in, in a game where if I'm on the left wing and I can see this right back has my number, you know, I can't get past him. I'll call Kalen over from the right and say, let's switch. You know what I mean? So there is that fluid fluidity and it's about game intelligence and knowing, okay, if I'm on the right-hand side of the pitch, these are the jobs that I need to be doing. So I need to be covering back and everything. So they're teaching them all of the positions of those front five players so that they're interchanging throughout a game because it's so difficult to now have to mark five different players. You know what I mean? Coming at you from all different angles. So I'm, I would be curious to sit down with Klopp and actually... <laughs> try and figure out if that's what he's trying to build at Liverpool because none of the players that we have, especially in the front, except for Ings and Solanke, and you can see Ings and Solanke this season are the ones, the two that have arguably struggled this season. But everyone else in that midfield, even Henderson can play as the eight, he can play as the six, he can, you know what I mean? So everyone has flu, excuse me, has fluidity of movement there. But obviously, being um, such seasoned professionals, and this is something that's happening in grassroots football in Germany, it's still in its trial areas and stuff like that. You, you know, you're not going to be able to maybe teach these these guys these new, you know, philosophies of football now. But I'm wondering if maybe that's he's he's taking little bits of that and bringing it into our team. Mm. And as 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 we've mentioned before, the types of players we're looking to sign. All of them that I've seen, none of them play a set position. You know, all of them have mobility to to move in and around the pitch. They've got the intelligence. You know, some people have called Navigator six. Some are saying if you put him as a six, it's too limiting. Is he an eight? Is he a ten? Like, I'm 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 curious to know if that's playing into Klopp's you know um, thinking and philosophy with who he's signing, how he's bringing players in, and the fluidity in which we're going to be playing with. I completely agree. I think we'll see we'll see K to play as a midfielder. That's what his role. But he'll be a, a midfielder. Yeah. <laughs> you'll go, you know what I mean? He'll go into the midfield and yeah. he'll play wherever he needs to play in the midfield because he's a midfielder yeah. and he's good at pretty much everything. And I yeah, we'll so, we'll sign someone like Fakir, for example, is obviously the latest one we've been linked with. But as I say, most of the players we've been linked with will play along similar lines. They can play as an eight, they can play as a ten, they can play as a wide player. Mm. Uh, it gives us a bit of fluidity. We can even we can even see players like Marnik maybe play as a false nine. I know we haven't seen Marnik play there, but it's entirely plausible that we will see him play there. So you know, I think especially across that front, especially as you as you say across that front, maybe more maybe more of a front four than a front five, but we will see that. Yeah, but we've yeah. got we've got options, and again again across the midfield. We've been we've had games where we've been looking at the starting lineup, not really knowing what the formation is. But yeah. that's such a that's such a British way of looking at it. Klopp will say there isn't really a formation. It's players because Klopp has said this repeatedly. You've got players who attack and players who defend, and that is the system within that. I mean, we, we've seen games where it's not we're not sure if it's a four three three or a four four two or a back three, and the answer is whatever it needs to be when we're in or in possession or out of the ball. And that I think we will see that definitely see that again next season. And that's a good way of playing it because if you. Because you know fluidity is a really important to a good system. If you watch watch Guardiola's teams at their peak, the point the point is that you're not supposed to be able to track where a player is. Because if if the opposition can't keep track of where your players are, you can. That's how you create space. If someone like Salah can either dart out wide, str- stretch the defense, or he can dart inside, play effectively as a number two at times. I think that's part of it. Been part of the issue with Salah in the last few games. He's been way too tight, way too narrow. He's been a, almost a bit one dimensional. He's been playing yeah. almost as a Almost as a striker, he's not, he's not, and he's games. not pulling pulling the defense sort of wider and apart and no. with bigger gaps between them, etc. There's been a there's been a lack of a lack of stretch and a lack of movement from that front three, which has been a problem. Um, that's definitely part of it. So I think yeah, it's all about keeping. I mean, we've seen the midfield have various different balances this this season. We've seen them almost play. As, we've seen them play in a double pivot. We've seen usually Chan and Genie, but we've seen them play basically a two one with a number 10, especially if that number 10 is filled. We've seen um, we've seen them play as a flat three, 
we've, we have seen games where they've literally gone in, there is no defensive midfielder. It's a flat three, midfielder, 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 all in a line. And we have seen games where we've played with an out-and-out out six and, and two eights. So we've seen a midfield of, which is which is finely balanced in the sense that we've got a midfield that can play basically any way. We've got three attackers who can play basically anywhere across the attack. And that's the way Klopp will like it. We've got full-backs who can effectively play as wing-backs. And we've got full-backs who can play almost as centre-backs. That's the way Klopp likes it. He likes having a variety of options and that variety of options being in the same starting eleven. So I absolutely agree with Tadira on that one. I like. I think that will be that will definitely play a part in in our summer signings. And that will definitely continue to play a role into next season. All right, then let me do this to wind up this pod. The only thing we haven't spoken about is the goal we con- we conceded. What do you guys think about that? Any any blame as we love to <laughs> pin on the players? Any blame uh, that that we can attached to any particular play or any uh, uh, particular sort of action from, from a player or was it was so just one of those things or was it just a very good goal i'll open it to the floor i had a bit of a debate about this on twitter earlier i'm not sure um the way i saw it was klein picked up his man but then we let lovren get two on one which isn't ideal. And in that situation, really, you need you need a midfield runner to pick up Fabregas. You need someone from the midfield dropping back because you can't have a three-on-three in your own penalty area. Yeah, That's not ideal. However, that being said, I think VVD needs to be more aware of the situation. I appreciate he I appreciate he gets in the right position by the letter of the, you know, defense. if you look at the defensive handbook, VVD is probably in the right defensive position. Mm. Do I think situationally he was in the right position? No. But I, I, I watched the goal and he, he looks over his shoulder as the ball's going over his head. You need to be looking over your shoulder constantly. You need to be aware of where Giroud is there. You need to be aware of the fact that Fabregas is running into the box and no one's picking him up. You need to be aware of the fact that your centre-back partner is about to get caught in two minds because he's got two players running at him from different areas. So you need... Van Dijk there needs to take Giroud for me. He needs to take control of that situation and yeah. just pick up Giroud. Because I, I appreciate that, by the le- as I say, by the letter of the defensive handbook, he's probably in the right position to block the cross. But the ball, but this, because of the situation, the ball goes over his head. He stood in no man's land, and Lovren's got two players having to pick up two players. So of course he's Lovren probably should you know attack the ball and, and stop Drew scoring. But when he's got Fabregas running over his back shoulder, he's got a struggle to deal with that. And then the other situation is if if Lovren and Klein both get tight, suddenly they've got a man free at the back post who's in acres of space to put it in. So this is a yeah. situation that we've had multiple times before where we just don't have enough men in the men in the box. Uh, but for me, in that situation, Van Dijk needs to be the one to say, I'm going to win this ball in the air because he stood in no man's land. And it, it's a, it's such a tight thing. Uh, if you watch it, it happens in a split second. But Van, but for me, the, for me, the, the, the death knell was that if you look at the replay, Van Dijk isn't looking over his shoulder until the ball's past him. And that, for me, is the critical error. Did mm. you carry on from that for me? Do you have... The thing is, what, what I'm... Looking at again here is I remember at one point we were recruiting fullbacks who could cut out crosses <laughs> and that was a big thing on Liverpool Twitter and it just seems very recently we are not doing this very well at all. Um, our fullbacks tend to be isolated at times for two and one situations. It's just impossible to stop the crosses. Uh, other times just not helped out by midfield, etc., etc. I mean what? Do you, do you think that's a problem that we have? Do you think it was a problem for this goal? Um, I think we also have to take into consideration, and I may be incorrect in this, but I, I, it did deflect, right? Yes. There, there was a there was a deflection on the cross, yeah. and I think some of these things you just can't legislate for. The fact that that deflection happened loops it perfectly for Giroud to sort of run onto, and Giroud is one of the masters of you know heading the ball in all of Europe. He, I, I'm not sure if he still has the record, but he, he had a pretty good record even before he left Arsenal. So it's one of those situations where maybe we could have gone into the ball a bit quicker, but considering you know, the amount of running we've been doing lately, it could have been a split-second decision where the player's thinking, oh, I'm pretty tired here. I don't know if I can quite get there. But also, he could argue, I did True. get something on it, you know, and yeah. then the deflection is just unfortunate. It's something, you know, that happened. And if you look at the way the, the, the header happened, yes, um, as Tom was saying, Van Dijk could have been in a, in a better position, but maybe he was calculating that there wasn't going to be a deflection. And the deflection is actually what then help, helps out the striker. And I thought throughout the entire game, it felt like it just wasn't our day. 
Like some <laughs> of the, you know, some of the touches that were bouncing off our players in critical moments, you know, are touch, you know, a, a few bounced bounced off Salah that um, I would have been expecting for him for you know expecting not to have bounced off him. So it it was sort of out of our hands. I felt that it it wasn't our day. But just um, just before we close, I do have to mention the fact that that Salah dive, man, he's got to stop that. I don't want that in his game. I'm sorry. I don't want our players starting to dive. Absolute garbage. No, don't do that. You're in a situation where you can get a shot off. That's it. I, I, yeah, he, he absolutely cannot be doing that. Stamp it out straight away. I want, I want a manager like Klopp who's going to turn around, turn around and go, don't do that again. Do that yeah. again and I'll haul you off. Unlike someone like, I don't want a manager like Pochino who'll encourage it. I think Klopp has done that, hasn't he? I, I, yes, I, yes, he did. I, I think, I think he did. I think he did come out and say he doesn't like it. And I know Klopp's not a fan of it anyway. I'm just saying I'd like to see Klopp come down quite hard on that kind of thing because as as fans you don't want to see that. I'm I mean I know some I know some teams breed it. I don't want to be one of those teams, especially in that kind of situation where he doesn't have to do it. That's the thing. That was the most annoying thing. It was a situation where he did not have to die whatsoever. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. No, cool. Thanks, guys. We have come. To the end of the hour, I will allow you guys to do some plugs right now. I will start with you, Tom. Um, you had a really, really good article I read the other day about uh, squad options, you know, the squad options versus quality and that kind of thing. Really, really good article. I encourage everybody to go have a look at that if you haven't already. Anything else coming up from you recently? Yeah, I've got that one, which basically says, um, I don't think we need more players. I just think we need better players in certain areas. I think if you if you I think we've got enough depth unless you consider unless you look at the top front three, if that makes sense. I think yeah. if you yeah other than we've other, got the numbers, than, yeah. it's it's not it's not so much numbers. It's more the quality within the squad that's that's the issue sort of. Uh yeah, pretty much that. Um obviously I'm going to push the writers pod, which myself and Liam Prescott co-host. It's a really fun show. We get writers on every week who talk about their own articles and. You know, there's always good quality articles on the site, which means me and Leanne can, can usually produce a good quality show, basically. Um, uh, we've got one on, there's one currently up on the site the last week's, which we got Ash Hebs to come on. And we did actually talk about my squad article, but we also talked about Ash's article, which was really good about the importance of nailing down top four and how we're going to nail down top four, which obviously went a bit tits up this weekend, but hopefully we can finish off next weekend. And I've got another one coming later on in the week. Uh, I'm going to talk to Joe Norton, who's written a really good article, which I would also recommend you go and check out. That is on um, whether we've got too many injury-prone players and how that has to, and how when you're building a squad, you've obviously got to factor in the fact that certain players are going to be missing for X amount of games, yeah. which me is a really, really important element of building a squad, but obviously we don't have time to talk about it more at the moment. Yeah, that, I was thinking about that exact issue the other day. So, yeah, go check out those articles and um, uh, keep on the writer's part. It's a really, really good part. Uh, to do uh, for you, your part of the week, and anything else you're involved in? Um, yeah, my part of the week this week, I think, goes to the LFC transfer room. They did an analysis on Ruben Nevis, which I thought was quite timely, obviously, with the rumors linking him with us. And it was interesting to sort of get a perspective of that they had a Wolves fan that was also on the podcast. And it was interesting to get, you know, his perspective of Ruben Nevis. And obviously, he was quite... Um, quite hopeful that they didn't lose him and sort of giving us an understanding of his day-to-day quality week in, week out, whereas, you know, a lot of us, we tend to then see him either on a highlights package or on, you know, some sort of where you're not really seeing a 90-minute game of him. So I thought they broke down his his pros and his cons quite well. So it was the um, LFC Transfer Room podcast analyzing uh, Ruben Nevis. I thought they did a really good job. And then in terms of other things, um, I, I thought I listened to Nina Kauser's uh, live post-match podcast straight after the um, about a couple of hours after the match, and that helped settle me down a bit as well. So shout outs <laughs> to them because yeah, they 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 helped me. I was I was quite I wasn't necessarily angry with the the defeat. I was just I was just like oh man, like so unnecessary. You know what I mean? But but they they had some positive things to say and. Also, you know, some outlooks into what the future holds for us. So that was pretty cool. Nice, nice. Go check those out. That is all from us. Big thanks to my panel. Huge thanks to you always, as always, for listening. We'll be back for the next game against Brighton. Hopefully we turn in a performance because it looks like we're really going to need it. We need to finish top four, please. Please, we have to do that. So, oh man, I just, I don't like this reality that we're living in now where suddenly it's precarious. 
our friend Joe Cuzzy has been on Twitter talking about how we've sort of let this slip from um, from a few Three. games back now. Brilliant tweets, hasn't he? Really, yeah. really good analysis. Yeah. And it's uh, it's just uh, got the shits in me. So <laughs> I hope we can do it at Brighton. And then none of this will matter. So that would be great. And then we can look forward to the Champions League final. So until then, until that game against Brighton, we will be seeing you. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Let's get ready to rumble! Y'all ready for this? Sports Social Podcast Network.